Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. Several years ago, there was a uh, catchy wireless carrier commercial where uh, this man would walk around on his cell phone testing the reception all the time. You remember this? Uh, he, he'd ask the person on the other line, can you hear me now? Good. And he'd just keep walking around all day, every day, everywhere. Can you hear me now? How about now? Now, good, right? And, and so that's just, that's all he did with his time. And uh, if it was during the day or night, he could be at the beach, he could be downtown, he could be on a mountaintop or in an airport in the rain or the snow. Um, he'd just walk around asking, can you hear me now? How about in this situation? Well, how about in this situation? How about when I'm over here or over there? And I, I think our relationship with God sometimes, if we're honest, starts to feel like that. Uh, we go through different situations in life, and it's like we were good, we were trusting God, and then we enter a new situation that just wrecks our world, throws us upside down, and it's like, okay, can He hear me now? Am I going to trust Him now? Can God really hear me? And uh, that's kind of what life is like. I don't know about for you, at least for me, there's various seasons and circumstances, valleys and mountaintops I'm going through, and I'm asking God, can you hear me now? How about now? In this situation, that situation. And uh, this year for our church, we have a theme that's called Trust More and Fear Less. Trust More and Fear Less. And I wonder if you've been challenged this year to trust God with something that you've been going through. Uh, kind of like the how about now guy from the commercial. Uh, if you've been challenged to trust God in different ways this year that maybe you normally weren't perceptive to and and it's there's a situation or that's come up and man can I trust God with this is there any situation that we can't trust God in that's sort of what we're going to talk about this morning from Acts chapter 23 where we're going to look at two big reasons not not all the reasons but just two big reasons why we can trust God right now you know what i mean right now and what i'm going through right now so i'll remind us uh, as we turn there uh that uh, last time in the book of acts last week uh roman soldiers had rushed into the temple complex in jerusalem to stop some some jewish uh religious leaders and different jews from beating paul to death the apostle paul uh they were in the middle of beating him to death for a crime he didn't commit, which was taking a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, past this barricade in the old temple complex. Uh, to do that was worthy of death. And um, so they were stoning him to death, or beating him to death, and not, and not knowing what was going on. You see how there's a fortress connected uh, to the temple mount here. There's a fortress over here called the Antonia Fortress, built by Mark Antony, but... Um, Anyway, this is where the Roman commanders and, and hundreds of soldiers were stationed. 
And uh, so they see this big, you know, riot and ruckus going on down in the temple complex. And the commander, they call him, you could call him the tribune or the Kiliarch, whatever title works in your Bible. But um, it's all the same thing. His name was Claudius Lysias. And he just sends, you know, a couple hundred troops down into the temple complex there. And that's the whole reason this fort was built, is because during feasts like was going on here in the book of Acts, during the Feast of Pentecost, there was often uh, riots and things, just, it just got out of hand. But um, anyway, he sends a couple hundred soldiers down there to stop Paul, the Apostle Paul, from being beat to death. And um, they arrest him, and they start to bring him into the fortress there. And on the steps, uh, Paul is uh, able to address his Jewish brethren. Uh, Claudius gives him the opportunity to speak, probably because he wants to learn what is going on here. He doesn't even know why it's happening in the first place. So he lets Paul speak and uh, just to gain some more intel. And it was all going really well. Paul's sharing his testimony about Jesus and how Jesus has appeared to him and, and uh, gave him a mission. And it all went really well until he mentioned the word Gentile. And they remembered why they were beating him. So they started to chant, away with him, this man doesn't deserve to live. And so Claudius brings Paul into the Antonia Fortress to be flogged, you know, kind of like an investigation, you know, like they're going to flog him until he speaks type of thing uh, to get the truth out. And uh, But upon learning that Paul was a Roman citizen, uh, they had to call it off. Paul called on his Roman citizenship. He's like, it's, it wasn't legal to arrest nor beat a Roman citizen who wasn't guilty of anything, hadn't been proven guilty anyway. And so at this point, the, the commander, Claudius, doesn't even know what to do with Paul. And uh, Paul is sitting in protective custody. That's where we pick it up in chapter 22, verse 30. Uh, let's read just verses 1 through 5 here. But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews... He released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. Now, looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life with an entirely good conscience before God up to this day. But the high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Uh, Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Uh, Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? Pretty intense, isn't it? Uh, But those present said, are you insulting God's high priest? And God, er, sorry, and Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he is the high priest, for it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So, uh, first thing we see here, the first setting is Paul before the council. Claudius orders the Jewish council of religious leaders, also known as the Sanhedrin, to assemble for somewhat of an informal investigative session. This is something of a pre-trial, we could call it. Uh, a pre-trial just for Claudius to to gather some information. He wants to know for certain, verse 30, he wants to know for certain what's going on here because at this point he still doesn't know why the Jews are so upset with Paul. He doesn't know what to charge Paul with, if if at all he should charge Paul with anything. 
And uh, it's, it's interesting to note the continuing parallels that we've been seeing in these last several chapters. These parallels between Paul and his final journey to Jerusalem and then Jesus and his final journey to Jerusalem. There's just parallel after parallel taking place. And I think one of them that we see here today is this uh, the Claudius and just the, the whole... Claudius seems to remind me of Pontius Pilate. Remember, Pilate, he... He didn't know what to do with Jesus. Kind of like Claudius doesn't know what to do with Paul. Uh, Pilate, you know, interrogated Jesus and he's like, he, 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 this guy's innocent. He knows he's innocent according to Roman law, but he's being bombarded by irrational, belligerent appeals to kill him by the Jews. And so there's just many ways, I think, in which Paul is experiencing the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. You remember when Paul said that? I just want to know Paul. I want to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings. Well, it, it's almost—it's just terribly ironic and amazing the parallels between what Jesus went through and what Paul's going through. He really is experiencing the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. And look at the description of Paul here. The description of Paul is that Paul is looking intently. That's verse one. Looking intently at the council. That kind of, you know, he's just eye to eye with these guys, surveying them, you know, and it just kind of gives you a sense of the feel of this whole meeting. This is tense. I think Paul is even tense based on his, his reaction to when he was struck. I mean, this is just a very tense moment. As far as Paul knows, this could be his very last day on this earth, right, living in his earth suit, his body. I mean, he could be with the Lord today after this, but uh because he did something worthy of death. And um, at, no, he didn't, but they were accusing him of it. But add to that, the, this fact that many of these council members are old colleagues of his. And, you know, at, at one time, these were his soul brothers, right? He was on the same team as these guys. And now, Paul comes to Christ, and they've turned their back on him. They want to kill him now. And so there's this... There's probably some animosity there and just strange, you know, broken relationships and it's intense and they want him dead and Paul's now there. This one, this 20 years ago, they authorized Paul to go out and kill Christians. They even, these are the guys who gave him the order to go to Damascus to kill Christians and then Christ stops him along the way. Now we're here 20 years later, he's standing before these guys as a Christian and his life is now on the line. So look at how the tables have turned. It's just very intense. And uh, Paul is willing to die for Christ and the gospel's sake. But he starts his speech. Look at how he starts his speech by stating that uh, I have lived before God with a good conscience up until this day. A good conscience. The conscience is an internal faculty that God has hired, hardwired into us that basically tells us uh, whether or not we're guilty, right? It declares us guilty or not, the, the conscience does. Warren Wearsby, uh, one, one pastor and Bible teacher, called it the, the inner judge in our hearts. The conscience is the inner judge that condemns us when we do wrong or encourages us when we do right, of course, our conscience can be wrong, can't it? Cannot a, a, you know, a, a thug, a gangster, he can, he can think that it's wrong to tell the truth and rat out his brothers, right? His th thug brothers, you know. But our, our conscience, we want our conscience uh, 
to be guided by the Word of God. Guided by the truth of God's Word, matured by the truth of God's Word. That's only the only way to have a, just a, a healthy conscience, is to have it guided by God's Word. Don't let your conscience guide you. Let the truth guide your conscience, if that makes sense. Uh, because, again, the conscience can be misled. Uh, can, don't you see that in our society today? Like, our consciences are so seared. Because, they, you know, you do something long enough, even though you know it's wrong, and eventually it becomes right to you. You know what I mean? Your conscience is seared. And uh, that's biblical to talk like that. But uh, when Paul says his conscience is clear before God, I think what he means to say is that he has sought to follow the one true God of his fathers the best he could according to God's revelation. I mean, before Christ and all of that, Paul was following the Old Testament law according to God's revelation. Now, Paul is saying Christ has come, the Messiah, the Jewish hope of the Messiah has come. He's paid for our sins. He has given us new revelation, progressed in revelation, right? You go from the Old Testament and the New Testament when Christ came. I mean, Hebrews talks about revelation progressive, a little getting progressing a little bit at a time, but when Christ came, there was a big leap in revelation, right? And God's will. And uh, Paul's saying, look, even though I'm under the new covenant and you guys don't believe in it, you don't believe Christ was the Messiah, I'm still following God with a good conscience. You know, he's, he's responded obediently to uh, his conscience than to God. So he's innocent before God. His conscience doesn't convict him, but the council that he's standing before thinks that he is a guilty heretic. Remember, they think that he has apostatized from the true faith and the old covenant and all that they stood for. And uh, this, this whole scene reminds me of the famous uh, Reformed personality, Martin Luther. Uh, it's just almost a spitting image of what that guy went through. He was standing before the Roman Catholic Church Council uh, at what was called the Diet of Worms. And they were trying to get him to recant his teachings. Like, if you don't recant your teachings, basically, you're going to die. We're going to burn you at the stake, that sort of thing. And uh, they were trying to get him to recant teachings like salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, according to the Scripture's authority, and not the church's authority. So as a former monk, uh, he had practiced their man-made teachings and the religious dogma. A lot of the teachings back then, it's today, they, it's just a dogma that they've come up with, and then they use the Scripture to support the dogma rather than going to the Scripture to get the teaching. You know what I mean? taking their teachings from the scripture so uh, a part of their teachings and uh i'll have personal experience with it was uh, what they call indulgences you know these if you screw up you sin you go you confess your sins to a priest or whatever and they give you some sort of work to do or you can you can give money you know, you say this say this many prayers, this many times, right? Pray this prayer once, this prayer five times, this prayer ten times, and do that at each station of the cross. And, you know, hopefully you don't forget one of those prayers or whatever you got to read. I don't know. I just remember going through that as a kid. It wrecked my conscience. Did I say the prayers right? Did I say it enough times? You know what I mean? Like, how, am I, how can I be convinced that this is enough to actually pay for my sin? Or to restore my sin? You know, from my, restore me from my sin and save me from hell. You know, if I miss church on Sunday there, I'm going to hell. Um, 
it's just, it's a wreck for your conscience. And that's what Luther experienced, you know. He would go to different pilgrimages to Rome, and, and he would bloody his knees trying to be right with God through these religious works. You could pay money to the, to the church to try and purchase someone's soul out of hell, if even it's your own, you know. You just, you buy heaven, basically, back then. And so he's standing up against these things because uh, his conscience had been wrecked. You know, those sort of works, those religious works, do not purge the conscience of sin. And so it was only when he, Martin Luther, opened the Word of God, like the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 16, that he saw that salvation's by faith, not by works. It wasn't until he saw the purity of the gospel in the Word of God that heaven's doors opened up for him. And I have the same exact experience. I went through all the junk. I went through the man-made teachings. I went through the dogma. Only when I got into the Word of God and it said salvation is by grace, meaning it's free, you can't earn it. And it's, it was like heaven's gates opened. And I was born again. And God gave me new life in Christ. And hallelujah, praise the Lord. That's what I'm thanking God for this morning and every day. I don't get up here trying to work, trying to be good enough for heaven. I've, I've been saved. And now I'm just living a life of thanksgiving to the Lord, you know. But uh, Martin Luther was set free from his guilty conscience through the word of God when he understood grace. Hebrews 9.14 talks about this. It says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered up himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The works were never enough. Only the work of Christ on the cross is enough to forgive us of our sins once and for all and to give us a perfect position before God and a purged conscience. Anyway, Luther said that the popes and the, the Roman Catholic Church's doctrines of indulgences that were denying Christ's sufficient sacrifice on the cross, it says their teachings were were racking the consciences of the faithful. He said, the consciences of the faithful have been most pitifully ensnared, troubled, and racked in torment. And if you take your sins seriously and you're under a, that sort of system, your, your conscience is going to be wrecked with torment because you do your religious works and then you're good to go. And what, what happens the next time you turn around? You're sinning again, right? Oh, goodness, i got to start all over again. If you go through more religious works, well, with his life on the line, he stared intently at a familiar counsel to him, and he said, unless I'm convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I don't accept the authority of the popes or councils because they've contradicted each other. My conscience, listen to this, is captive to the Word of God, and I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. After his refusal to recant, they released an edict saying that he could be killed by anyone without any threat of punishment. Anybody could take his life at any time. And while the reformers weren't perfect, we certainly appreciate their stance on the gospel, at least I do. 
But the whole talk about him staring intently before a council and talking about his conscience being guided by the word of God, that's Paul is in the same situation as Martin Luther. His life's on the line. And uh, Paul's comment about his good conscience infuriates Ananias, this terribly uh, corrupt high priest at the time who has Paul struck in the face. And, and that's, that's not a slap. That word indicates this was, this was a punch. I mean, they, they struck him in the mouth. And we can't help but think, who else got struck in the mouth? Jesus, right? They, before a priest named Annas. Now, so you've got Paul before Ananias getting struck in the mouth. Jesus before Annas got struck in the mouth. They both had similar, uh, uh, really strikingly similar questions. Is that how you answer the high priest? That's what they said to Jesus. Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus hadn't, didn't say anything wrong, but Paul kind of blew his top here. <laughs> uh, they said, do you, do you revile God's high priest? So again, this parallel after parallel between Paul and Jesus. But for the, the high priest Ananias to have Paul struck on the mouth was against the law. That was unlawful. It was clearly out of order, and Paul is quick to point out the hypocrisy of this priest breaking the law in his defense of the law. You know what I mean? That's the whole reason they're there. But um, in response to the hit, Paul lets out this honest warning of divine judgment for the high priest's hypocrisy. Paul calls him a whitewashed wall. Uh, the idea, according to Ezekiel 13, is that a wall might look nice, it might look freshly painted on the outside, but if you leaned on it, Right? It would collapse. You know, you're walking down the street. Here's a nice white, white wall. You go to lean on it, phew, falls over. It's only a facade. You know, that's the idea here. It kinda, or it reminds us of when Jesus was denouncing this same exact group of religious leaders. And he said this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like a whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too appear righteous outwardly to men but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness so kind of like a, a nice tomb that's all decorated and bright white but on the inside full of dead men's bones that's what paul was saying to this this high priest like you are a spiritually dead man on the inside but you look nice on the outside so and and that's exactly what history records about this 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 uh this fellow named Ananias, he was greedy, he was harsh, he was corrupt, he was a collaborator with Rome, and uh, his own people, uh, Jewish zealots, you know, with their cloak and dagger type uh, assassin mindset, this was the, they, they eventually took his life. Like, he got killed by his own people. So, anyway, Paul, in his comment, uh, was certainly accurate, right? This guy was a whitewashed wall, but... It's also, I think, pretty clear that Paul blew his top here a little bit. He blew his cork. Um, he did something that was unlawful, too. Uh, he, it was unlawful to revile the high priest or any other sacred leader in Israel, and the consequences for it were death. <laughs> so he's there for being misaccused of something that actually the consequences were death, and then he commits something that's worthy of death while he's actually being interrogated. So... Um, talk about big slip up right um there's a lot of debate out there i was reading in the commentaries about whether or not paul slipped up or not and how to read this and you know we don't know the tone of his voice but you know the council understood it to be revilement 
it was pretty clear. Uh, this was revilement. Along, Paul also made an honest confession that it was, and he even recited scripture to back it up. To, to, this all tells us Paul blew his cork, but in his defense, he honestly didn't know, too, that this was the high priest. And uh, probably for various reasons, number one, this is a fairly new high priest. Paul has been away for a long time. He wasn't around when this guy was appointed. Um, secondly, we know that Paul had impaired vision to an extent. Uh, and you can read about that in Galatians. And then number three, uh, since Claudius called this informal meeting probably outside of this council's official courtroom, uh, the high priest probably wasn't wearing his garb, his royal garb, and so it was hard to identify him as the high priest. Uh, but even if Paul did slip up, I think it's encouraging for us because it shows us not even the Apostle Paul was perfect. And uh, we might even say that God specializes in using imperfect people. But you know what? Um, the best thing you can do, you know, if, if you don't sin, is to confess your sin. You know what I mean? He confessed it openly and publicly. He said, you're right. I did it, you know. And in, he even quoted scripture to affirm it. So um, I, I didn't notice the high priest confessing that he'd sinned. So interesting. Uh, verse 6, but Paul, perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, began crying out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and I am on trial for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And when he said this, a dissension occurred between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. And that's why they're sad, you see, right? Uh, just kidding. Uh, there's no resurrection. They don't believe in angels nor a spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And a great uproar occurred. And some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and started arguing Heatedly saying, we find nothing wrong with this man. Oh, wow, all of a sudden they find nothing wrong with him. Uh, suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And when great dissension occurred, the commander was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, and he ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. So Paul, uh, recognizing that there's two different groups on here in this, on this council, Pharisees and Sadducees, who passionately believed differently on the resurrection and the afterlife. This is an old civil war. Paul, Paul stirs the pot and he's, he, he says, he reminds, he reminds them of why they're there in the first place. And it's because Paul is ultimately on trial for the hope of the resurrection. Uh, the resurrection from the dead, right? Christ and the resurrection. And uh, his comment kind of re-sparks this age-old civil war over doctrine and the Pharisees even start to side with Paul. They find nothing wrong with him. Isn't that funny? So you can tell what's more important to these guys, their doctrinal war with the Sadducees or, uh, or Paul and this one guy in a situation. But uh, Paul is now in the middle of these two groups, and it's like they each have, uh, Sadducees have one arm, and the Pharisees have another arm, and they're going to tear him in two. <laughs> and uh, so Claudius has to remove Paul by force and carry him out of there because Claudius, if, if he allows Paul, a Roman citizen, to be killed on his watch while in his custody, Claudius now could lose his job or lose even his life. Uh, that's how much, uh, uh, I guess, the privileges of being a Roman citizen were, were very high. So uh, at least they, they valued it highly. So he, 
Claudius puts Paul behind bars and it's there he's sitting in jail at night that we come across one of the most comforting verses in all of scripture. Look at verse 11. But on the following night the Lord stood near him. Whoa. I don't even see this as a vision or a dream. The Lord stood near him and said, this is Jesus, be courageous. Cheer up. For as you have testified to the truth about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome also. Isn't that great? Here's the Apostle Paul. He's alone. He's in prison. It's dark. It's probably cold. He's mistreated. He's been misjudged, misrepresented, falsely accused. Right? On top of that, he screwed up. He just screwed up. Right? He just blew his cork. He probably feels guilty about that or like he failed in his testimonial integrity. Right? His, his testimony about Christ. I mean, he just, he's probably got all sorts of questions running through his mind. Uh, you remember just a couple chapters ago, two different groups of Christians in two different cities trying to convince Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Right? Because bad things were going to happen to him there. And so Paul probably has these questions going through his mind. What if the prophets were right? What if these prophets were right? I shouldn't have come to Jerusalem. Why didn't I listen? Why am I so stubborn? Right? Why didn't, why didn't, they, why didn't they arrest me back then and keep me there and not let me come to Jerusalem? I wish I would have done a better job of sharing the gospel. You know, maybe he's thinking these things through his head. I wish I had a, I'd shared the gospel better when I had the chance. God, uh, how about this? Maybe God busted Peter out of this jail. You remember that? Peter was in this jail once. You know what God did with him? He opened the gates for him. And he just let Peter out. It was a miracle. What about Paul? Is God going to open the gates for Paul? You know, he's, why doesn't he do the same for me? So you know how the questions, right? They just start to flow when you get into a trial, some situation. And how encouraging. The Lord stands beside him and says, take courage. Take courage. Other translations, maybe your translation says, be of good cheer. What a, what a good word from the Lord when you're going through a trial in life, huh? Be of good cheer. Take courage. Jesus says, you've testified here in Jerusalem. You're, you're going to testify in Rome as well. Paul had to be overwhelmed with joy. It's like, I bet he leaped to his feet with joy over this. Even though he might not have felt like he did a great job of witnessing in Jerusalem because... I don't know, for various reasons. There were no revivals. There's no expressions of faith. All he did was get beat up and cause a riot, you know. Jesus told him, you have testified to the truth about me. And Paul was also going to go to Rome like he always wanted. He always wanted to go to Rome. Paul just got done writing a letter to the Romans saying, I want to visit you if God wills. I can't wait. I hope God lets me come to you so I can... You know, I can preach the gospel to you too. And then, and then he gets arrested and he doesn't know if it's going to be his last day. And then he says, no, you're going to Rome. That's, that's pretty amazing. But Paul's not going to go to Rome the way that he always planned, right? I'm pretty sure Paul wanted to go to Rome willingly, not in chains. But he's going to go to Rome, so he's happy. But here we see our first reason to trust God in the now. And it's this, he's always with us. Reason number one, 
God is always with us. He never leaves us. You know, one of the, I think this is, and I haven't ever counted necessarily, but I've heard it. Um, the most repeated promise in the Bible is that he will not leave you nor forsake you. Like, if it's not the first most repeated, it's second or third, okay? He's always with you. What are you going through right now? Is he with you right now? And what you're going through? The answer is yes. He is with you right now. He's going to be with you in the next couple seconds. He's going to be with you in five minutes. He's going to be with you tomorrow. He's going to be with you next year. He's going to be with you throughout all of eternity. In fact, it only gets better, right? There's never a moment where he's not with us. When we go through the trials of life, we need to remember to take courage because even though we don't see him, even though we don't feel like he's there, he is with us no matter what. And that's his promise. That's his promise. So we can forget our feelings and our opinions and by trust, faith is promised that he hasn't left us or forsaken us. Remember what Jesus said right before he ascended, what did he say? He said, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And at the end of the age, it only gets better. He lives with us, visibly, personally, tangibly to see him. He's omnipresent. That means he's all present. He's everywhere. Uh, there's not a place you can go where God can't be with you, where can't see you. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's all omnipotent, they say. All-powerful. All-powerful. That's important because that means no one and nothing can stop him from being with you. It's pretty cool, huh? That's pretty comforting. Nothing can stop him from being with us. Nothing can separate us from his love. That's what Romans 8 talks about, right? Nothing stops him from being with us. And so to answer the question, can he hear you now, even in the present situation you're in, the answer is undeniably yes. Undeniably yes. But you might also have to exercise trust in God. Okay, He might not appear, with you, appear to you like he did with Paul, but this is part of the whole reason for trials, is to increase our trust in God. To increase our trust in him. I mean, just to name a few purposes for our trials. Can you think of a few reasons why God allows trials in our lives? Number one, to increase our humility. Just to humble us. Uh, to help us examine ourselves. Sometimes, As soon as a trial comes into my life, I know I'm examining myself for sin to get rid of, that I need to get rid of. Maybe an idol I need to put out of place. Um, uh, he's using it to reshape our desires. You know, to turn our back on the world and to turn to more eternal things, right? to increase our desire for Him. Uh, he'll, he'll use it to give us a future ministry. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says, right, we can, because of, we've been comforted in our affliction, we can now comfort others in their affliction. When they go through something similar that we've been through, and it's also there, these trials are there to increase our trust and our dependence on God. Right? To increase our trust in Him. And that's just to name a few. And I'll, I'll be honest, 
I was putting this together this week, and I, and I was thinking God had very well crafted certain trials in my life to meet my personal needs for spiritual growth somewhere. You know, trials don't just happen to us. They're given to us by God, I think, and they're, they're, they're tailored for who we are. He knows what we need, and he knows how he's going to use them in his perfect will. And so uh, I think there's some way through the trials that we go through. There's some trials I went through that I have no idea what God was doing, okay? <laughs> I have no idea. But there's some where I'm like, okay, that was tailor-crafted to fit me. You know, and I humble my, you have to humble yourself and just say, Lord, do your work, you know. But one man said this about uh, Paul. Paul, remember, Jesus just told Paul, Paul, you're going to go to Rome. You know when that's going to happen? It's not going to be tomorrow. It's going to be two years before he even sets sail for Rome. He's going to be in prison for two years. And this promise from the Lord is, is going to do so much for Paul. One, one commentator wrote this, This assurance meant much to Paul during the delays and anxieties of the next two years. Delays and anxieties. You know what you need to do when there's a delay? <laughs> Trust God. Wait on Him, right? For two years, Paul had to wait on God. And uh, it goes far to account for the calm and dignified bearing, which seemed to mark him out as a master of events rather than a victim. Isn't that cool? So the Lord's promise gave him a calm, dignified bearing that marked him as a master of events rather than a victim. Isn't that what trust does? When we trust God, it brings calm and it brings dignity to our lives. We don't see ourselves as victims. We see ourselves as in the hands of God. Yeah, I'm going through this. Yeah, it stinks. Yeah, I don't want it. But I know that God has me right where he wants me and I'm in his hands. And he's going to use it to make me more like him. And he's going to use it to advance the gospel if I respond rightly to it. And uh, in it, I'm going to trust that he's sovereign over it all. I'm going to trust that trials don't just happen to me by accident. But in his providence, my Romans 8.28, God is going to work all things for good. And that's really the thrust of the rest of the chapter. Do you, you know, let me just explain one thing before we read it. Okay, The difference between miracles and providence. Uh, a miracle is when God uh, breaks through the laws of nature. Right? He just overrules it, you know, and says, forget it, I'm walking on water anyway. You know, he breaks through. It's supernatural. He, he breaks through the laws of nature to do something miraculous, like parting the Red Sea. A miracle, right? But there's a providence would be when God functions within the laws of nature to do something. So instead of maybe parting the Red Sea like he did for Israel, he might provide you with a boat and some oars you know either way it's still God working and uh, God's providence reminds us of like someone behind the stage you know an orchestra orchestrating the you know you see what's going on around you but you know that there's someone else behind the curtains pulling the strings in essence basically God's working behind the scenes to put the right people are the right circumstances in the right place at the right time. 
and uh, all to accomplish his will. You know, there's an Old Testament book called Esther that's all about this. The book of Esther doesn't mention the name of God at all. And yet, throughout that book, it's very evident that God is working and he's, he's the one orchestrating everything. And I think that's how he mainly works today is through providence. But uh, let's look at the conspiracy to kill Paul. Uh, when it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and put themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. And there were more than 40 who formed this plot. And they came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have put ourselves under an oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you and the council notify the commander and bring him down to you as though you were going to investigate his case more thoroughly. And as for us, we're ready to kill him before he comes near to the place. So they're going to they're kill Paul as he goes from the Antonia Fortress to the Sanhedrin's council place. But, uh, but the son of Paul's sister, his nephew, who even knew he had a sister? Who even knew he had a nephew? Well, there they are. Um, just in the right place at the right time. Paul's the son of Paul's sister heard about their ambush, and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions to himself and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. And so he took him and he led him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me over to him and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. And the commander took him by the hand and stepping aside began to inquire of him privately, saying, What is it? that you have to report to me. And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. So do not listen to them, for more than 40 of them are hiding in ambush to kill him, and these men have put themselves under an oath not to eat or drink until they kill him, and now they are ready and waiting for assurance from you. Then the commander let the young man go, instructing him, tell no one that you have notified me of these things. Okay, so uh, the next morning, the Jews, they conspire to take Paul's life again. Justice is too slow, so what are they going to do? They're going to take matters into their own hands. Uh, uh, But God's hands are a little bit bigger and stronger than their hands, right? That's what we see here. Forty assassins, they place themselves under a curse, basically. Uh, It's either them or Paul who's going to die. And uh, Paul's nephew, nephew providentially happens to overhear of it. And he tells Claudius, and uh, it's pretty awesome that uh, this just nephew just happened to be in the right place at the right time. How cool is that? Um, notice Paul, when the nephew comes, didn't say, well, thanks for telling me about this, but I'm going to trust the Lord. You know, is that, that that's, yeah, we, we tend to do that. But he said, you know, he was going to use this. Right? He trusted that God's providence provided this, both his Roman citizenship and this nephew's testimony. So, um, Paul recognized God's providence, is what I want to say, in his life. Uh, he didn't say, you know, the Lord told me he was going to take care of me, so I'm just going to, you know, I'll be fine. Don't worry about it. No, he recognized God's providence in his life, kind of like us. You know, we get sick with different things, and it's like, I'm praying. I'm going to go to the great physician first, right, for my sicknesses when I need healing, that sort of thing. But I'm also going to go to the doctors that he's given wisdom to, you know. And and so you find a balance there, kind of like, wow, I need money. 
but I'm going to go work, right? You know, I'm going to bring it to the Lord to pay this bill, but I'm going to go to work too. You know, so you have to find a balance in here somewhere. And uh, verse 23 will continue. He called to him two of the centurions and said, get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night. This is 9 p.m. Uh, pro- to proceed to Caesarea, uh, which is Caesarea Maritima. It's where the governor's, Roman governor's seat was out on the sea, uh, on the edge of the sea there, northwest of Jerusalem. But proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. And there were also, they were also to provide mounts for Paul, a horse for Paul, and bring him safely to Felix the governor. So pretty amazing. God has Paul go first class with 470 soldiers and himself riding on a horse, right? Talk about first class, first class treatment, right? Um, Claudius was clearly flexing his military muscles, though, before the Jews when he did this. But uh, he wrote a letter with the following content. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix. Greetings. When this man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them, I came up to them with the troops and rescued him. After learning that he was a Roman um, and wanting to ascertain the basis for the charges they were bringing against him, I brought him down to their council and I found that he was being accused regarding questions in their law but was not charged with anything deserving death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. So Claudius is basically washing his hands of Paul. It's a very wise move for him. Get him out of Jerusalem and transfer him to uh, Caesarea. Verse 31, So the soldiers, in accordance with their orders, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. That's 35, 37 miles northwest of Jerusalem. But on the next day when they uh, let the horsemen go on with him and they, the foot soldiers, returned to the barracks. When the horsemen had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. Now when he had read it, he also asked from what providence or province Paul was, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive as well, giving orders for Paul to be kept in, look at this, Herod's Praetorium. Okay, so first he gets this first-class treatment on his way to Caesarea, and now he stays in the governor's palace. I mean, this place was pretty magnificent. Uh, Just a beautiful place right on the edge of the sea. He's going to stay here as a Roman citizen. With He's going to be treated with excellence. I mean, he, it's, he really is. They've done excavations of this place, and it was beautiful. But uh, we have 40 men who attempt to take matters into their own hands and kill Paul, but God. Right? Two very important words in the Bible. But God, in his providence, overrules the whole situation. And uh, in some... What this section is about is God's providence working behind the scenes to accomplish his will for Paul. God is working behind the scenes in this whole, this whole thing. I think that's what the, the whole thrust of this text is saying to us. God and his providence is working. That's the second reason we can trust God now. Not only is he with us at all times, he's also working out his will for us even when we can't see him or understand exactly why. God is working behind the scenes. God's providence, guys, it can be such a mystery to us. I think it mostly is a mystery to us. Many times God's providence is taking place without us knowing it. 
or us understanding it. But many times, in big ways and in little ways, we see God work in ways that are just unmistakably Him. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's like the right person shows up at the right time. You know, and, and you're praying about it, and, and maybe you don't have enough money for the, you know, the, the bills that month, and the perfect amount of money comes in at the right time. You know, and it happens time and time again. And every time it happens, you just want to look up and smile. It's like God's winking at you like I'm here, I'm with you, I'm taking care of you. You know, I, just, I love God's providence. I love to talk about it. But uh, like a backstage choreographer, our Romans 8.28 God is working out his purposes for us both through the positive aspects of life and negative aspects of life. And so, yeah, to answer that question, can he hear you now? The answer is yes and yes. And this account reminds us that God specializes in using imperfect people in his providence to accomplish his will. People like you and me. Paul screwed up, isn't, didn't he? Did Paul screw up? Did he blow it? I think he did. Did Jesus come to him and say, okay, you're on the bench now. You're useless to me. He didn't, did he? No, he said, cheer up, buttercup. My translation. Cheer up. Be of good cheer. Keep following me. Keep testifying. Um, There was one commentator, Kent Hughes. I think he captured the heart of this passage with this one story. He told a story about a little boy who during a grand concert, right, one of these big fancy grand concert, this little boy uh, slips away from his mom and he works his way to the piano on stage. And uh, he starts to play chopsticks, you know. Anyway, it's not very impressive, okay, chopsticks. But uh, with the whole crowd is irritated and the mom is just embarrassed, the master... Right, the grand piano guy, the, the orchestrator, he Pedruski was his name. He comes out and he plays a counter melody. He sits down beside the child and enhances his chopsticks with a counter melody. And as the two of them played together, Padruski, Paderuski, however you say his name, kept whispering in the boy's ears, Keep going. Do not quit, son. Keep on playing. Do not stop. Do not quit. And Hughes, the commentator, says, Perhaps our service to God is sometimes more like chopsticks than Swan Lake. You know? But we have a heavenly calling, and even at times when we blow it, Christ stands beside us and tells us, Take courage. Be my witness. Do not stop. Do not quit. Isn't that great? We can trust the Lord's providential counter melody, making our chopsticks into something beautiful. Thank you.